Hi, and welcome to the Bookish Besties podcast. We're excited you're here with us to talk all things books and reading. We are two friends brought together by our love of reading. I'm Diane and adore my beach life in Charleston, South Carolina with my family and dogs. Reading has been a pleasure my whole life. I read to travel when I cannot leave home, to escape when life gets to be too much, to learn even when I'm not in school anymore, and to make new friends on the pages of stories and by talking to those who share my passion. And I'm Mary, a northerner living in the frozen tundra of Madison, Wisconsin. I've been an avid reader for as long as I can remember and make a point to read every day while still balancing the challenges of work and life. My ideal is to be curled up by the fire with the dog on my lap, a glass of wine on the end table, and a good book in my hands. We would be most grateful if you would rate and review our podcast. It really does help others to find us. Thank you so much, and happy reading. Today, we are with Kimmery Martin, the author of The Queen of Hearts and The Antidote for Everything. It is March 25th, and we are in the middle of a new way for authors to promote books. So we are um, doing a Zoom conference, and Kimberly is an emergency medicine doctor raised in the mountains of eastern Kentucky, not Carolina. A lifelong literary nerd, she reviews books, interviews authors, and works extensively with the Library Foundation in Charlotte, North Carolina, where she resides with her husband and three young children. The Queen of Hearts was her first novel, The Antidote for Everything, her second, and I believe a third is in the works. <laughs> Welcome, Kimmery. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You are welcome so much. How is, how is everyone in, in your life, in your world? Are you guys on shelter in place yet up there? We're a little shook. <laughs> we, um, yes, we are all home, um, my husband and our three children. And my husband is a surgeon and his practice has been um, put on hold indefinitely because he does mainly elective surgeries, so he's home. And the kids, of course, are homeschooling at this point. Um, and I am home as well. I am preparing to probably go back to the emergency department. The state of North Carolina has asked that all physicians who've retired or shifted to other careers to come back if they're in a position to, um, particularly if they're in a position to provide emergency care, which I am. So I'm in the process of reactivating my emergency license and, and we'll see. How long has it been since you've left your practice? Uh, about four years. So the Queen of Hearts came out in 2018, and uh, while I was in the process of writing it, I switched to an office job that was a little less demanding <laughs> on me, hours-wise. And so it's been a while since I've been back. I can, I can still intubate people. I can still do procedures. I can still triage and do some critical care, but I don't plan to go back to the regular ER full time until I've really finished this writing career, which is going to be a while, I hope. Right, right. Well, I think, you know, it's kind of all hands on deck right now. So, yeah, we are most appreciative of all the people on the front lines, you know, the, even the, the people who are driving trucks, who are bringing us food and the grocery store attendants who can't not. Oh, absolutely. I, and I have so much worry and fear for my colleagues. You know, they don't have adequate protective equipment and um, you know, that's about as high risk as you can be in an ER or an ICU. Yes, for sure. 
for sure. Okay. Um, so tell me a little bit about how did you make the transition from emergency medicine to writing? I know you use your medical background in these books, these lovely stories, but how did that kind of segue? Were you writing part-time and practicing? Yes, yes. So I started the Queen of Hearts while I was working full-time as an emergency room doctor. And I started writing because I'm, like you, I am a huge book lover. You know, I've always gotten just the most tremendous enjoyment from reading, and I wanted to try my hand at the thing that has given me so much joy throughout my life, and I really thought I could do it. <laughs> so I, I sat down and just started writing one day without a plan, which is not the ideal way to structure a book. <laughs> but it took a lot. It was a lot. A lot of revision, a lot of self-education, a lot of trial and error, a lot of going to conferences, a lot of reading. Um, but I did write a book and it did get published and then I wrote another book <laughs> and now I'm hooked. I just, I can't see myself doing anything else for a while. That's great. What's your favorite part of the writing process? Is it the brainstorming at the beginning, touring at the end or everything in the middle? <laughs> uh, without a doubt, my favorite part is creating characters, dialogue, and just structuring the sentences themselves. I'm a sucker for like a witty, well-worded sentence. Um, in fact, I have been accused of being a word nerd and that is 100% true. Um, but I'm not that good at plotting a book out in advance. Um, I don't do that actually very well. And so, you know, we all, there's so many things that are easy and so many things that are difficult uh, when it comes to writing. Right, right. So, so do you start with the end in mind or you just let the story of the characters take you where they may? Well, for the first two books, I just started with no, nothing in mind except for <laughs> characters. And then yeah. I gradually worked in a plot and went back and started revising the, the outline and the structure to make it work. Um, the book that I'm writing now, I have attempted to outline somewhat more, um, and that is a smarter way to do it if you can do it that way. A lot of writers don't ever do that. They, right. they prefer flying by the seat of their pants, and so we call them pantsers as opposed to plotters. <laughs> that makes good sense. That makes good sense. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about, so no spoilers because it's still a new book and I don't, we don't want anyone who hasn't read it to, to know the end or anything, but tell us a little bit about The Antidote for Everything. So I actually write medical fiction. It states in my contract with Penguin Random House that my books have to have a female doctor as the protagonist. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. It's very niche. Yeah. <laughs> um, so The Antidote for Everything is about a woman named Georgia. Um, and her closest friend, who is a man named Jonah, and they are both practicing physicians outside Charleston, South Carolina. George is a urologist, and Jonah is family medicine. And Jonah actually is threatened with an ultimatum from the clinic where they practice, saying that he can no longer treat transgender patients, or they'll let him go. And he refuses this ultimatum and does get fired. So that's sort of loosely the, the central question of the book is what happens to them after this circumstance. Um, and to me, the book is really an ode to friendship. You know, they, the two of the, them, these characters are everything to each other. Mm -hmm. um, they have no close family, and so they are each other's support systems, and this friendship to them means everything. Yeah, and you know, that's even what I wrote down. I, I loved Georgia. Um, but I really loved Jonah, but I, I took away, my theme was, 
obviously it's it's about the discrimination and the you know what class of people are protected and what class of people aren't and why and, and there's so many you know political geopolitical questions surrounding that especially in the south but the friends as family theme was just so huge and and um and it was sweet how the two of them really came together and would have done anything and did anything for each other so that was really yeah. I and left. they didn't always make very smart decisions. <laughs> you know, you, you cannot write a book about perfect characters. They have to be flawed. You well, know, there's no tension good. in a book if your characters are not making mistakes and getting into trouble and having obstacles and so forth. Exactly. Exactly. They were, they were perfectly human. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> so Georgia and Jonah are the main characters and they are both, um, I think very identifiable. I am, um, not a man, I'm not a gay man, you know, I'm a married heterosexual woman, but I still found Jonah's plight very, very relatable. And, um, and I think you did an exceptional job of doing that, especially since you also are not a man and not a gay man. And um, talk to me a little bit about the sensitivity readers. So you had a sensitivity reader for this book to kind of help you identify things that, that were not your experience, yes? Yeah, so as you say, um, I am not a gay man, and one of the characters is. So I did have about, I think I had six sensitivity readers. Right. And those are people in that community that read the book for me and gave me feedback on, you know, how realistic and accurate and sensitive the portrayal of a character is when I myself am not in the same community as that character. And I was really nervous about writing it. Um, now, the book is told from the point of view of an ally of the LGBTQ community. Um, and so I didn't try to put myself inside the head of those characters directly. Um, but it was still really important to me that if I was going to write a book that, that revolves around medical discrimination, that I portray these people in a realistic and thoughtful way. Um, and so, yeah, actually, probably one of the greatest blessings of having written this book is that I became so close to one of my sensitivity readers that he's now one of my closest friends. Um, and I've started to get a lot of letters from people in the LGBTQ community thanking me for writing it and saying it touched them on a certain level. When I was still able to do the book tour, which got canceled, I was meeting some of these people in person and it was it was just such a joy. It was such a blessing. It was such a, a sweet moment. Um, I really appreciated they took the time to tell me these things. Sure. So you, you were able, you were fortunate enough to have part of your book tour. You, you started your book tour yeah. and then you didn't get to, did you do about half of it or not even that? Uh, yeah, probably close to half, I think. Um, ironically, I got out of New York City right before it shut down. <laughs> like I, I think it was March, Eighth or something like that, or March seventh. I can't remember the exact date of the um, the event there. But we had a ton of cancellations that morning, and it was before everything started officially closing. And there wasn't any shelter in place or any stay home stuff being issued yet on, on any kind of big stick scale at that point. Um, but I went home and stayed home and didn't leave it. I haven't left the house since. And I, you know, I was like, I just came from New York City. So, so for two weeks, I just shut down basically. Yeah. Yes. But everyone in your house is healthy. 
Everybody's been healthy. Yes. That's good. That is good. We just, we just had a case um, in our neighborhood, in our plat that um, it's an older person and they had traveled to Europe, but um, so it's definitely serious. And I, I hate for all these book tours that books that haven't even launched that aren't, the, the authors aren't going to get to tour at all, but I do know that it's the right thing for everyone to do. It's, it's certainly not easy, but it's the right thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, me losing part of my book tour just pales in significance to what other people are losing. Yeah. Sure. It's, it's awful. Sure. Yeah. I do think, um, one of the, my house is readers. We're all readers. And so, you know, we've always taken refuge in books, but I think one good thing about books and this time is that even people who maybe haven't been lifelong readers or voracious readers have a lot more quiet and a lot more downtime right now. So I think people are looking for stories to transport us away, even momentarily, right? From the real world and the scary things that are happening in the real world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Always time for books. Well, I, I, as I said, I love your main characters, but I want to talk specifically about three more secondary characters that I thought Frida Myers Delacroix was one of my favorite of all time. Where, where did she come from in your, in your mind? How did you develop? Um, you know, she's, so, so Frida Myers is this, um, character that makes a little cameo <laughs> in the book. She's not a point of view character. She's not even on there for more than a page or two, but, but she's a patient of Jonah's. Um, she's a transgender patient of Jonah's in his family medicine practice. And without his knowledge, the clinic tells her not to return, um, that they can no longer provide medical care for her. And the genesis of that was based in a real life experience that a colleague of mine had, um, not in North Carolina, but a different state, um, where this, this doctor was told that the clinic where they practice would no longer be permitted to treat transgender patients. Um, and I, I mean, yeah, it, it was stunning. Um, it was stunning. It was awful what happened to the doctor. It was awful what happened to the patients. They lost this, this really good medical care they'd been getting. And a lot of times when that happens, or if that happens, people don't have the ability to just find another doctor. You know, they may have to go out of network or they may have to travel a longer distance or there may be long waits, or maybe no one wants to treat them. And it's, I don't think that that story is widespread or representative of healthcare in general. But I have heard from various people saying that, you know, this was unrealistic and would never happen. And I wanna tell you, yes. It can happen. Absolutely. Right. And even if it just happens to one doctor and, you know, his or her patients, that's one too many. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, it is. It is. You know, I, I do think very strongly that the concept of, you know, own voices in fiction is legitimate and people shouldn't attempt to tell other people's stories. But at the same time, I'm writing this book from the position of a medical care provider. And I don't think that physicians should just sit back and be silent in the face of policies that affect the care that we can provide. And without getting too nerdy and into the legal weeds and so forth, I will say there that the Department of Health and Human Services in the United States has actually stopped enforcing the policies in the Affordable Care Act that were meant to prevent medical discrimination. They've made an open announcement that they are not going to enforce those policies, I believe. Um, so it isn't completely unrealistic to think that discrimination in medical care could be increasing. Right, right. 
crazy times, right? <laughs> Darby was another one of the more secondary characters. She had, she had a bigger part than Miss Delacroix, but um, she was conflicted, right? So you and I both live in the South and there are wonderful, fabulous things about where we both live. And there are things that are a little bit slower to come around in the South than in other parts of the country. Um, and Darby was another physician who was dedicated to her practice of medicine. And these policies weren't really directly affecting her, but she stood up out of her comfort zone as well and kind of took a stand for Jonah. And um, do you think that that's what, you know, there's always going to be the leaders of, of a change, right? But I think um, that it's the supporting cast that makes the change happen. You know, Jonah couldn't have, and Georgia couldn't have done it alone. They needed a lot of Darbies in there. Yeah, I think, well, so the character of Georgia, the main character, is not meant to represent some recently woke straight chick who suddenly <laughs> realizes that discrimination is happening and, hey, I have to save the day. And, you know, it just doesn't work like that. Um, she's a long-term ally of the community and she understood the issues. Darby, on the other hand, I would define as gradually getting woke <laughs> throughout the book because she didn't come into this book with any knowledge of these issues or probably any concern about these issues. Um, she also, to me, represented another thorny topic, which is that of religion. Sure. Um, you know, I didn't want to beat people over the head with um, the representation of religion as being either discriminatory or saviorish. Um, and so I think some of the characters in the book represent different extremes in their beliefs, particularly of Christianity. Um, and I'm a Christian myself, and I sometimes I'm a little taken aback by the perception in the press that Christianity is discriminatory because not all of us believe the same things when it comes to cultural issues like that. So um, yeah, Darby's a very typical Southern, very religious, very um, probably, um, you know, culturally conservative person. Um, and suddenly she's encountering situations that are a little bit outside of her wheelhouse. So, yeah, I mean, interesting to see what people will make of her character. Well, I liked her. I liked her. I thought she, she had an arc, you know, she didn't end where she started and that's what we all can hope for, right? We, we learn and grow as new things are exposed to us. One of the, one of the ties she had was this, this particular clinic where they, where they worked um, was also church affiliated, right? It, it was, um, which many hospitals are. Mm -hmm. And so that, that kind of complicated or, or gave justification um, to some people for their behaviors, you know, that or otherwise. Yeah, and that's another reason that I kind of felt compelled to write this book from a, phys a physician point of view, which is that, you know, hospitals are sometimes privately owned and therefore they are governed by policies that are different than public laws. Um, and so and I made up this fictional clinic outside of Charleston where it was owned by a, um, you know, very fundamentalist church that, that believes, you know, homosexuality is a sin. And, and that is reflective of some reality in some places in the United States. Um, and so I, I started doing some digging into laws and found that it really depends on where you live as to what the laws are regarding discrimination. And um, some places it's perfectly legal to fire someone because they're gay. It's perfectly legal to refuse housing to someone because they're transgender. 
Um, and in certain cases, it's legal to refuse to provide medical care on the basis of those two things, again, depending on where you are and what the circumstances are. Sure. sure. Oh, I hope that that this is, you know, this is a great book club book because there is a lot of fodder for discussion. And I think that, you know, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in some of the book clubs, as I'm sure you would too, to hear people are going to come at that from very different, you know, sides of, of the discussion. And I think that we'll all just hopefully keep learning and growing. That's what books do for us, right? They stretch us and they help us learn and grow. Yeah, I do. I believe that with my whole heart that, you know, what fiction does is it gives you a glimpse into a different perspective, a different world, a different life, a different set of viewpoints than your own. And, and fiction does that beautifully. Absolutely. Absolutely. So at the, at the beginning of the story, I'm not spoiling anything. At the beginning of the story, there was a crisis on the, in an airplane. And um, I know I have many experiences with traveling with friends and, and others who are doctors. And um, it's always a kind of the nightmare and the joke, like, please don't come over the PA and say, is there a doctor on board? So has that happened to you? It, it happened to Georgia and it changed, it kind of changed the trajectory of her whole world. But have you, have you been on a flight where you had to jump into <laughs> doctor mode? No, but a lot of my colleagues have. Yeah, it happens a lot. I, it, it happens, happens a lot. Than yeah. People may yeah. realize. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so when, which character came to you first? Was it, you said you started with characters. Was it Georgia that was, you know, your first glimpse into writing this book or, or was Jonah first? Well, so Georgia's actually a spinoff character from the Queen of Hearts. She was one of the medical school friends of the main characters in that book. And she, she wasn't a big character at all, um, right. but I thought she sounded really interesting and fun and like might deserve her own book. Right. <laughs> so she came first, but... Tell yeah, I always kind of had Jonah in mind, too. Um, he was just wholly fictional, although he, in real life, very much resembles a close friend of mine, that, that man I mentioned who was my sensitivity reader, although I didn't actually know him when I started writing it. That's funny. Tell us a little bit about the Queen of Hearts. So we are all now trying to get books on all different kinds of forums since we can't leave the house. So a lot of people are using Overdrive from their libraries. And your new book, The Antidote for Everything that we've been discussing, has a long wait in my library, the Charleston County Library. So maybe people will have an easier time at right now finding The Queen of Hearts. So tell us a little bit about that one. That was your first novel. Yeah, so that one is not very issues driven. <laughs> I, I wanted to write something that was sort of a fun, entertaining, fly on the wall glimpse of the practice of medicine from an insider's viewpoint. And I had this vague idea that I'd write about a group of friends in medical school. Because for me, that was such a formative period in my own life, you know, very intense. You work really hard, but you play really hard and you wind up forging these incredible friendships. Um, so the main characters of that book are a cardiologist, hence the title, <laughs> and a trauma surgeon. And they've been closer most of their lives, but one of them is hiding this very significant and shocking secret from the other one. And it's not even really so much what the secret is as to why she did it. Um, and so that's the crux of the story, I guess. It's a great one as well. It, it was, and again, about friendship, you know, there, there's the common thread. Mm -hmm. And it has a beautiful cover as just as the antidote for everything you have, whoever's doing your covers is doing a lovely job. <laughs> 
Oh, yes, she's such an amazing artist. She's in-house at Penguin. Oh, beautiful. So I know some authors do not like to talk about works in progress. I, are you working on a, a new book? Do we have a third book coming? Yes, we do, I hope. Um, <laughs> it's ironic that, that you asked that because, well, it's ironic for two reasons. The first is that is about a um, brand new viral pandemic. <laughs> And I've been writing it for about eight months. Well, it took a lot of research. So for a long time, I was reading virology books, talking to people in the CDC and the WHO, um, just researching, and then I started writing. And the story was going to be pitched as the hot zone meets Sophie's Choice. So the main character is an infectious disease doctor, and she's traveling with her two children in the midst of a novel viral pandemic when both of her children become deathly ill, and she has to pick which child will receive the only available dose of an experimental antiviral medication. So, <laughs> the other reason this is ironic, <laughs> the first reason is obvious why this is ironic, right. but also I just, I don't know, I'm kind of in the um, midst of talking to my publishers about whether we should proceed with it. I, I've been working so hard on it, but who's going to want to read a book about a viral pandemic? If it were coming out right now, I think, yeah, probably a lot of people would, but it's supposed to come out in October of 21. And it's gonna look exploitative if I'm not careful. Um, I meant it to be a cautionary, this could really happen kind right. of thing. And now the entire world knows that this could really happen. So, so I'm kind of waiting to see what we decide on this. Okay. Do you, are you a one book at a time? person like are you um i know some people work in in parallel on a couple of different story ideas do you go all in onto one book and finish it and then go to the next yes yes so i don't have another book in mind at all and i would have to start completely from scratch um <laughs> i don't know diane we'll see <laughs> I'll, I'll fill you in in a couple of weeks I, I mean we may still do it i don't know I hate to just quit. It's been so much work, but we'll see. Right, right. Well, you know, I think there'll be there will be a time for it, whether it's October twenty one or or not. There will be a time for it for sure. I'm yeah. sure you, you write lovely stories, so I'm sure they will. It, it's time will come. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. It is. Um, I know that that the whole publishing world is a little bit upside down. You know, we have had some information on some authors' books who were supposed to be releasing. Um, it's an election year, right? So that that kind of changes the publishing world a little bit in, in the month of November. They don't mm -hmm. have a lot of books scheduled to come out. Yeah, I, I've heard that they're not, there are not a lot of fiction books scheduled for this fall for that reason. Right, so, but that also allows an opening for some books they're saying, you know, maybe this isn't the time for X, Y, or Z book to come out. And so we'll push it three months or four months or whatever. So I know some people are getting notified. Some authors are being notified that their April and May books are no longer April and May books. Mm. So, you know, it's just, I, I don't even think we know all the trickle down effects that, that are going to happen yet. But, but one thing that you and I both hold dear are independent booksellers and independent bookstores. So, um, that many of them who are not on shelter in place are still doing curbside pickup or delivery to your door. Is there um, 
Do you have a cup? And most of them do online orders as well. Do you have any favorite indies that are selling your books where people could find them if they can't get on the overdrive wait list? Absolutely. Yes. And I've been, I've been saying this all over social media too, because my gosh, I don't want bookstores to close. Um, well, in your area, um, I would assume some of your listeners are, you know, in the South Carolina coast. I love, love, love Buxton books in Charleston. Yes. Absolutely. Phenomenal store. Oh my gosh. And, and I think if things ever do go back to normal, I'll, I'll have a big event there. Um, so I love that store. I love Letchfield. In Charlotte, I love um, Park Road Books. Um, in other places in South Carolina, M. Judson and Hub City oh, are great in Greenville. wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Um, oh my gosh, I could go on and on and on. <laughs> I have a lot of favorite books. It's hard to only list a couple because then you're going to get off and you're going to be like, oh, I forgot this one. That's I know. I know. Well, and Main Street Books in Davidson, it's another Davidson. fantastic Carolinas bookstore. Um, yeah. I yes, know. So it's still doing, you know, pick up, she'll wrap it in a bag for you and put it out front and you can pick it up on your walk past at Main Street Books in Davidson, so. Yeah. Oh, Story on the Square in, outside Atlanta is one of the most beautiful bookstores in the country and really, really cool. Thank You Books is a new one in Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. Um, Boxtail Books in Atlanta. You know, we, um, my partner here on the, the podcast, Mary and I were just speaking on our uh, podcast that just dropped yesterday about how for book lovers and book people, these indie bookstores are destinations, you know, like mm -hmm. my family knows wherever we travel, if, if there's an indie bookstore within an hour drive, we are going to find it and we are going to go there and we are going to purchase things because it's so important to these stores to not just love them, but to, to help them with our financial resources and buy things from them. Amen. Me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it has been such a delight, Kimberly. We are going to end with a little rapid fire questions. They're not hard. It's, um, it's a little bit reminiscent of, I, I don't know if you're familiar with James Lipton from the Actors Studio. Um, oh. This past, but he had this set of questions that he asked at the end. He asked everyone. Okay, okay. <laughs> What is your favorite word? I would not have had an answer to that had somebody not asked me that on my tour. Okay, and, good. Okay, so you're gonna laugh at my favorite word because it's really more of a syllable. <laughs> <laughs> um, my youngest child makes this sound every time something happens to one of the rest of us that, that she finds humorous, often in a slightly naughty way, like if we were to say stub our toe while yelling at her or something, she goes, <laughs> <laughs> so now my whole family, whenever anything happens to anyone we don't like, we go, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not exactly a word. <laughs> It counts, it counts. But I dare you not to use it now that you know it. <laughs> now that I know, people all use it here as well. What about your favorite sound? Oh, well, shoot. If I had known that was going to be <laughs> the question, then that would have been the answer to number one. Probably my, um, well, my favorite sound would be music. Yeah. yeah. Your favorite fictional hero or heroine? Not Eloise. Okay. Eloise from Eloise, the children's book. Yes, yes. I love her. She has such verve and independence and, um, you know, creativity. <laughs> yes, she is fabulous. How about, what are you reading now? Are you, I know you're busy with your new virtual tour, but do you always make time to read? 
Oh yeah, yeah. I wish uh, if your people could see the stack of books behind me. And <laughs> I am reading a bunch of things right now. Um, the Ten Thousand Doors of January by Alex Harrow, Long Bright River by Liz Moore, and um, Shelter from the Machine by Jason Strange, Before Anyone Else by Leslie Hooten. Those are the four I'm digging into right now. And I keep books kind of stashed all over the house so I can keep a couple going at once. I know we have, we have um, the piles get so high sometimes in the night, I will hear a crashing sound. And I'm like, oh, just a pile of books fell over. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. And we hope for everyone that bookstores open back up and everyone as well. And book tours can continue and authors continue writing us wonderful fictional stories, which we love. Thank you. Thank you. This has been another episode of the Bookish Besties podcast. Bookish Besties is a production of Tidal Wave Books, LLC, and is hosted by Diane Barnett, and Mary Meist. Produced by Lily Barnett. Find us on Instagram at Bookish Besties Podcast. Thank you for joining us in talking about all things bookish. We will see you next time.